Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. It's really easy to get to the point where you're searching Scripture with a confirmation bias. You're trying to find out how to back up what you believe instead of asking the question, what does the Bible teach and what does the Bible say? Uh, Being a good Berean, we used to say, uh, with all joy, receiving the Word of God with all joy. Uh, but then searching the scriptures to make sure these things are true. Now, you can get this podcast anywhere you get your podcast. You just search for TruthQuest Podcast with Robert Furl. You get our long-form teachings, you get these Q&As, and you get our shorter hot topics, which are a little bit punchier on certain topics. Now, our first question today has to do with how come God uses trials, or what, what is the goal that God has Uh, when bringing trials into our lives. We think back to one of the first trials that we ever saw, that we were told was a trial, and that was with Abraham when God tested him. And he told him to take his son, his only son. Now, you would remember that he had another son through the flesh by Hagar, and now he is told to take Isaac up and sacrifice him. And we know that Abraham believed God and trusted God because the New Testament tells us that Abraham thought God was going to resurrect him from the dead. He was going to be obedient because God had said it was through Isaac that all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed, that one of Isaac's descendants were going to be blessed. But now God says to sacrifice your son. And so the test for him is how was God going to bring about his word if I do what he told me to do. And maybe this is a struggle that we all have at times, figuring out how is God going to do what God said that he's going to do? And one of the ways is trusting him, being willing to trust him in what he says. And testing, when God tests us, obviously it's not to test us so that he can know what's going on with us. I I, I listened to a guy trying to explain why he thinks that God needs to test us for himself. Because if, if the test doesn't take place, then God wouldn't have his omniscience. Omniscience would be that God would know what you would do in the test. But if you don't do the test, then God doesn't know, which is just silly because God knows what you would do if you're tested and he knows what you would do if you're not tested. And he's got his purpose and his plan in suffering. When Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross, suffered uh, on that cross for our sins so we could have eternal life, there was a great purpose for that suffering. And God has a purpose for trials and God has a purpose for suffering. Now let's just take a look at a couple of these passages. You may be familiar with them, but never a, never a bad thing to relook over God's word, right? And here it says, this is, uh, this is 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you. Or the fiery trial, which is to try you. Which, yeah, which is to try you. Now, this verse, I always say, does it have to be fiery? Couldn't it just be a trial? But a fiery trial would be a trial that is severe. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trials to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So God's doing something inside of you and me when he takes us through trials. 
Job said, as the sparks fly upward, man was made for trouble. The longer you live, the more it seems that you get that heart and that attitude. God does deliver. God does answer prayers. But there are times that God takes us through difficulties. This is James 1, chapter 2, uh, James 1, verse 2, verses 2 through 4. My brother, encounter all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why does God test you? So that you can be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So that you will know that you've been faithful. So people around you will know that you've been faithful. Just because God knows the outcome doesn't mean that you don't need to know the faithfulness that you have when you're tested or other people don't need to know the faithfulness when they're tested. The final passage has become one of my favorite passages out of all the pages of scripture. And this is 1 Peter 1, 6, and it's 6 and 7. But it also speaks to us again of the importance of being tested or tried. It says, in this you greatly rejoice now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, again, this one isn't fiery. This is various. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, your faith, much more precious than gold when tried by fire. So God's got to do something inside of you, getting you to trust in him so that the faith that you have is much more precious than gold, could be to his glory, his honor, and his praise. And may our faith be found to his glory, honor, and praise. May we be able to go through those things that we're, we suffer and go through, the trials that God tests us with, putting our, 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 our hearts, our minds, our eyes on him to make it through the difficulty and the trial and that God will be there with us every step of the way. Now, with temptation, it says, he will not tempt you beyond what you are able and a trial could in, be a temptation that you would be confident. God's with me. If God's with me, then I can go through whatever it is he has for me. Or by his grace, I'll be able to go through um, whatever it is that he has for me. So good to see you guys here today. Let me see if I can get, there we go, uh, get up our comments here and take a look at our first questions. It's good to see you guys. Uh, we have our first question from Andre. Andre says, um, did King, uh, did Neko, King of Egypt, and Josiah worshiped the same God. Necho warned Josiah the fight wasn't with him, but he didn't mind his own beeswax. Second uh, Chronicles 35, 20 and 21. Well, let's take a look at that. Uh, I'm not sure without a little bit more uh, research I'll be able to answer this one uh, with uh, great confidence. Let me just go ahead and find my Bible here. Oh, there we go. And we will go to 2 Chronicles 35. All right. Let me just go ahead and get there. Like I said, i got to find a, a quicker way to do this. But 2 Chronicles 35, verses 20 and uh, 21. 20 and 21. And then let me put it on the screen for you. It says, After this, uh, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against uh, Char Chism uh, by the uh, Euphrates, 
and Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers saying to him, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house of which um, I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who was with, uh, who was with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not need heed the words of Nico from the mouth of God. So he came and he fought in the valley of Megiddo. And the, acres sh uh, and the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, that he brought him to Jerusalem. So he died. All right. So the, the question here is, so we have... Nico, uh, Josiah wanted to come up and fight. It seems, it seems with Nico, and Nico doesn't want to be a part of it. Nico says that he's going to win, and for him not to come up, and like you said, he doesn't pay attention, and he ends up getting killed in the battle. Uh, I think I would need to again go back and spend a little bit more time in the context and the bigger context of this. Um, I don't think Nico served Yahweh. Josiah would have been talking about God. Uh, I don't think that they serve the same God, uh, but I would need to do a little bit more research. I think we could find that within there. So I don't know that I can answer your question there. Um, what Josiah should have done is just seek the Lord, to seek the Lord with what God wanted for him to do. And he ended up doing this and it ended up being a, a problem for him. So uh, sorry, I can't be more help with that, Andre, but I do appreciate your question. Uh, we have a question from Psych Man. Uh, from England. Good. Be home in a week. Okay, well, good. Um, we'll see you in about a week. Anytime um, of in, uh, anything of any theology significance or other happening in Israel, do you feel there like a uh, stronger presence of God? Thanks, dude. Thank you, psych man. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some significance that's happening. Um, I think that as we continue to march through time, going towards the end, that Israel is going to be more and more the cup of trembling. And remember, the Bible told Jesus told us that these things are like birth pains. So they come increasingly, and then they're kind of, you know, they're increased like a birth pain does, and then they back off, then they increase, then they back off. But at one birth pain, a child is finally born. It's during, it's during the time when there's a contraction that the child is born. So there will be one day where Jerusalem will be that cup of trembling that will cause uh, the other nations to come against them. Uh, and remember, the Lord says, I'm going to make you like a cup of, of trembling against the whole world. And it seems like more and more people are turning against Israel, becoming anti-Semitic. There's really a small number of Jews around the world compared to, well, compared to other nations, certainly. Uh, and, uh, it's it's a very very tiny nation, uh, but it's able to stand its own ground. Um, no, I don't feel different when I'm in Israel. I think that our relationship is with God, and we interact with Him. And there's nothing special or holy about the Jordan River or the Southern Steps or Tel Dan. Um, I can tell you that at times like at Tel Dan, where Jeroboam set up his calf, and they found, this is, this is after Solomon died, 
So we're going back to almost a thousand years before Christ. Jeroboam set up two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan. A tell is a mountain Dirt has, has uh, and, and dust and dirt have blown over a, uh, a city, and you dig and you excavate it. And sometimes there's layers of cities there. We had just read about the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, Megiddo is actually a, a city that was there by this valley, by the Jezreel Valley, where the battle took place between Nico, where Josh, Josiah and Nico were fighting. Um, so that's a tell. So at Tel Dan, they have this altar where people came to worship Jeremiah's golden calf instead of going to Jerusalem because he was scared that if they went to Jerusalem that they would stop following him. But God had called Jeremiah as the leader of the, of the nation of Israel. And remember this time Rehoboam was over Judea. They were a divided country. The northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribes of Judea. And he didn't want them to go. And so standing by that altar the very first time knowing that it's the place that Jeroboam from fear put up a golden calf and Israel committed idolatry. And I've been reading about that throughout the scriptures. There was a sense of, there was a sense, an, uh, kind of an ominous sense about that place. I remember um, us doing worship there one time and um, I didn't like it. I, this time I said, no, we're not going to do worship here at all. This is a place where something happened and there's a lot of lessons to learn here, but I'm not going to do worship here at all. Um, there's something about, the when, when you go to Jerusalem on, uh, on a tour, they're going to take you through a tunnel and they're going to give you a, a view of Jerusalem. And sometimes they're going to be playing a song, something to really bring you into Jerusalem to show some significance to the city. And um, when the first time when I, when I go to Jerusalem, the first time that I get my eyes on the, the Temple Mount, there is something there. There's some kind of an emotion there. I don't think it's, it's, it's different. I don't think God's there in a different way. I just think I'm seeing where the Temple Mount was. I'm looking at where Jesus, the city that Jesus gave his life to and was crucified right outside the gates of Jerusalem. And so there's something that moves me uh, when I'm there. So those are the kind of feelings that I have, but I don't feel different like a stronger presence of God in Jerusalem. I think God's with us everywhere we are, uh, that the presence of God, um, whether or not you feel the presence of God, doesn't mean anything to how we're going to live, um, that you live by faith. And I don't get me wrong, I love when I feel God's presence. I love when I'm, when I'm worshiping him, I'm in a worship service, and we sing and we praise and I feel his presence. That's awesome. I like when I'm listening to something or studying something and I feel God really moving. I like when I'm preaching or teaching and I feel God really moving and I can feel and sense his presence. But if I don't feel and sense his presence at all, it doesn't mean I wouldn't follow him or believe him or trust him. I would follow him. I would live for him. I would trust him no matter what the presence was. So in all of your travels, I would say, psych man, if you can get to Israel, get to Israel. It's, um, it is really... Um, a, a, a neat place to be. You can't even see all of the discoveries and finds that they've had now in one trip. It's just not enough time to be able to see it. It seems our trips are getting more and more chaotic and more and more packed because there's so much more to see. And uh, that's one of the things we're going to do in the future is to look at what's really important and slow down the trip so that we can have some more time to reflect because we end up not reflecting. And I think that ends up being a problem.
All right. Thanks, Psych Man, for, um, for your question. I appreciate it. Uh, we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands says, um, will people who've heard the gospel and reject it prior to the rapture be able to receive salvation after the rapture? I heard some pastors say they will be deceived and not be able to accept it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Fact Check These Hands. I appreciate that. So, Here's the thing when it comes to statements like this about who's going to be saved after the rapture, if you had received the gospel and rejected it, you want a scripture, you want what you believe to be really driven by God's word. And if there's nothing in the Bible, then you want to keep silent on it, that we have no way to know. In in, in fact, unless there is is something in scripture that would say that that person can't be saved because they rejected the gospel before the rapture of the church and now after the rapture they can't be saved unless there's something specific that would say that then you would not want to say it at all and here is and here's one of the dangers that you find fact check these hands uh, is with, with pastoring and teaching i don't know why there is a temptation to come up with something and to be dogmatic about it when the scriptures don't really speak about it. There are enough things that the Bible is dogmatic about, that the Bible gives us to be dogmatic about, that I don't need to come up with my own ideas and then become dogmatic about it. So I would say that treating the Bible this way, and if if it's really represented properly here, which I think you are, Will people who've heard the gospel and rejected prior to be able to receive salvation? I heard some pastors say they will be deceived and not able to accept it. And um, I, yeah, I, I, not biblical at all. Um, I've never heard anyone say that. I've heard them say other things that I would disagree with. But this, as far as I can tell, is not biblical. Now I'm open. You want to show me a verse that would somehow show me that, you know, a a person that takes the mark of the beast will not, because they're given their allegiance to the beast, will not be able to be saved. And we're going to be covering that not, you know, not long from now. But as far as someone who's wasn't saved beforehand but heard the gospel, not being able to be saved afterwards, this just seems to me to be pure conjecture, uh, conge- conjecture and uh, personal opinion. And I think personal opinion and conjecture should stay out of Bible study, and we should follow. In, in what the scriptures are saying. All right, so thank you very much. Fact check these hands, I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from JDH. JDH says, is the mark of the beast literal or figurative? I've heard both. Um, yeah, like I said, JDH, we're not far from uh, being in the, have, talking about the mark of the beast. We're in Revelation, we just finished Revelation 10. We have Revelation 11, and we're going to talk about the rebuilding of the new temple, the two witnesses, um, and then we get to the mark of the beast within a couple of chapters. Uh, The mark of the beast seems to be something that when you take it, it's an allegiance, and you can't buy or sell without the mark. Now, think about when the Bible was written. If you just had a mark on the back of your hand and our forehead, it was just a mark for the beast, then someone could see it. And they would, they would buy, and you could buy and sell with it. So it, it could just literally be a mark. And then, of course, you have 
the introduction of chips. Someone can get a chip in the back of their hand or in their forehead, and now you can read off people's head or forehead. You've got to be able to have the chip to be able to buy and sell. Barcodes, credit cards were called the mark of the beast at one time. Um, uh, is it what, what kind of a mark do you get when there is an allegiance to, uh, to the Antichrist? And this, we, we really don't know, but we do know exactly what we're doing. So, figurative, literal, probably. Figurative, probably not. So, um, you could say it was figurative if, if, if the Antichrist is going to control you through um, cryptocurrency, which is programmable money. You can program it so that you can buy certain things with it. You can program it so that it isn't worth anything after a certain date. Uh, it could be programmed to you that you, if you make an allegiance and you're a part of the system, then you can spend it. But if you don't, they can just make it where you can't spend it. And uh, so that's the whole thing about programmable money. So could the mark of the beast be that and be figurative? I would think not. Um, I would think of it more as a literal. I think earlier that the 12, uh, the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, which received the mark from God, that that was literal. I think the mark of the beast will be literal. And I, I just will notice that when we're talking about this kind of stuff, uh, that we do say think, right? We think that it's literal. And um, hey, you guys just give me a, um, give me a kind of like a, let me know if this, the sound is okay. For some reason, my meter here, well, there it is. All right, should be okay. For some reason, my meter wasn't working. The one on the computer screen is, but the one on the um, soundboard was not working for whatever reason, but seems to be okay now. Maybe it was just getting glitchy on me. All right. Okay. So anyway, so thanks, JDH. Notice that I did say think a lot and a lot of that because there's not a lot. Hindsight is twenty twenty. But when you're talking about future prophecy, and this is why making really hard and fast opinions, you don't see how it is fulfilled until until after the situation. But we'll be able to see it clearly because we do have a lot of biblical information about what the mark of the beast is. All right, so thank you, JDH. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so um, let's uh, gotta have a question from um, Paul. So Paul says, did you forget my question on worship? No, I did not, Paul. I was waiting for you to either ask the question or use it in the beginning of another um, Q&A. Um, so Paul had asked a question, he just saw it on, our, on, a com on the, our YouTube page, had asked a question about worship. That, and um, I hope I'm going to represent this properly, uh, that you were having some trouble worshiping because you found that the songs weren't catchy enough and that if the songs were written by, I think you used the Beatles as an example, and it was catchy, then you could sing it. But because of that, you're, that you don't sing or you can't sing or you have difficulty singing. Um, and so, uh, let me just, um, I'm just going to take a moment and see if I can find your question here. On uh, on YouTube, we'll see if that how long it takes me to to get there. <clears throat> but I think I can I think I can find your question pretty quick here. Let's see comments. 
ones I haven't responded to. Or no, yes, okay, that's that's right, right. So let me just go down here and see if I can find um, your question, Paul. All right, yeah, okay, here we go. Um, read more. All right, so I got your, I got it here. So let me just go ahead and read your question, Pastor Robert. I take this question very seriously. I love God and see in the Bible how it is a statue to sing and worship and praise God. Yeah, and I think Psalms, um, is it 96? That tells us to sing a new song unto the Lord. Right, let me get there. Let me, let me look here. I think, I think it's 96. I should have probably have. Yeah, I got it right. So Psalms 96 says, and, and, and um, while we're in the middle of this, let me go to put this up on the screen for you. Can We can read it. So here it says, sing, um, oh, sing a new song. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all you earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation day by day. Declare the glory among the nations, his wonders among the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods and the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens honor uh, and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families and people. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord glory. Do his name. Bring an, affirm, uh, bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord with the beauty of holiness. Uh, trembles before him. All trembles before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all of the fullness. Let the fields be joyful and all that is in it. That all of the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with truth. All right, so that's Psalms 96. And that's just an example of one of the passages in the Bible that tell us uh, that we are supposed to uh, be worshiping the Lord. And so you say you take these very serious. You know, there's statutes that God wants us to praise him. And you say, and I do, and worship God at home with words, but for some reason I don't seem to be uh, to sing my praises. It has nothing to do with my voice not being good. It is that the songs in church that I have heard for years don't seem like catchy tunes. Take, for example, the Beatles. I can hear uh, their songs and remember them and sing them long after, uh, long after I've heard them and can't stop singing them. But the worship songs I hear at church, I never remember the words and always have to read them by the lyrics and, uh, and shout and short line and just uh, find these songs not singable, but find songs from the Beatles very singable and easy to remember. I want so bad to sing to God, but I just can't find a song that I can catch on to. How do I fix this? Thanks. Um, okay, so... I, I'm, I'm glad I read all the way through that because I, I want to represent you properly here. So we have a command to God to sing unto the Lord a new song. There's, you're going to sing a new song. The only way to, to sing a new song is to learn the new song. You can't sing a new song without learning the new song. Uh, there are worship songs that are very familiar. 
Uh, there are ones, there are old hymns that I love. There are hymns that I think I've sung too many times. I've become too familiar with them. I still love Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which is something that I sang to God and had some real worship experiences when I was in the Methodist church. Um, we still sing, um, uh, oh gosh, there's, there's a couple of, of hymns that we sing a lot in the church. They're not just our fellowship, but a lot of churches just sing a lot. And when I hear them, they don't do as much for me as they used to do because I've heard them a lot. Worship leaders, play a lot, of, a lot of worship sets. And they're playing more than just one um, at, at our church. They play several times and they play several times a week and then they're practicing and they're practicing with their band, their groups and they're getting people familiar with it. And I think they get pretty sick of the songs. I remember Glenn Fr uh, Fry from the, the Eagles had said that, you know, he was sick of Take It Easy. Never wanted to sing it again, but people wanted to hear it every time they did a concert. Um, I don't think it should ever have anything to do with our preference for music. Because if it is Paul, then now I'm thinking of it for me instead of for God. There are, there are worship songs that I like better than others. There are worship songs I don't like. There are worship songs I do like. I'm not like you. I get worship songs stuck in my head. And I wish I could get them out of my head. And you know how they say, when you get a song stuck in your head, do math, do long division uh, to get something out. It'll get your mind working on, on something different. And sometimes I'll get a worship song that is stuck in my head. Um, but I think, like I had said a little bit earlier, that I'm going to serve God whether I feel His presence or not. If I never feel emotional again, I'm going to live for him and serve him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to follow him, whether I feel his presence or not, because he's real, because he's there. And I don't, I, I don't need that to believe that he's real and he's there. So worshiping him is not about what you enjoy or what you like or what you find catchy. Worshiping God is you from your heart singing to him, lifting him up and praising his name and worshiping him. And so I would encourage you, Paul, to get past that, to, to figure out a way to say, you know what? I'm going to sing to the Lord. Just look at the words that are up there and sing it to God and think about who God is. Read Psalms 96 if you need to before you ever sit down to start to worship him. And while you're singing these songs, if these songs have any ability at all to talk about what God is and who God is and what God does and how God works in our lives, then let those words bring you before his throne. When you're singing, I worship you, we exalt you, you are, you're, at, you're exalting God. And so even if it was in something that I hated, even if it was in a music style that I absolutely could not stand, I would exalt God. Even if it was rap music, and I know there's rap music in churches going on today. If it was rap music that was happening, and it was, I exalt you, you know, whatever it is, I'm not a rapper, right? But whatever it would be, I would exalt him with that. And so you, you've got a command in the scriptures, 
in Psalms 91, 6, this is sing a new song to the Lord, sing to the Lord all you earth, sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation day by day. Declare his glory among the nations. So do that. So that's God's word. And if God's word asks you to do something that you don't feel like doing, you still do it because it's God's word. And I, I don't know um, what the experience is like as far as, as worship goes, where, where you're at, Paul. I, I don't know whether it's something that you're enjoying or not enjoying. I do know um, that, you know, when, when technically when you're putting things together, like when you've got, you've got one sound going out online now for worship groups, you've got another sound in the room. You can't have the same sound for both of those. And sometimes the room I think is great. And sometimes I listen online. And I'm like, wow, that's not mixed that well. It's not mixed. It's not mixed well at all. And uh, sometimes when an instrument is out of tune, you hide it in the mix. The sound, the sound guy's good, and he can hide it in the mix. But sometimes, if you're not monitoring that mix that's going out online, so I don't know if you're talking about online at all. But I would, I would say that you should worship him. Get a get a good old song, you know. Get Jack Hayford's Majesty. You know, Majesty, worship his Majesty. Unto thee be all glory, honor, and praise. Um, I don't know. It's a great song. Uh, look it up. Get the words. Uh, play it, you know, and download it on something. And, and worship him. And then when you find yourself in church, even though you might feel like, you know, I just don't want to sing. Sing anyway. Sing to God. Because you're there for him and not for yourself. Um, I... I don't know, you know. I mean, there are Beatles songs I like. There are Beatles songs I don't like. But just like there are worship songs I like and don't like, there are a lot of songs out there. A lot of worship songs. And I would just I would just say don't make it about don't make it about what you like. Make it about what God's command is to praise his name and then sing and praise his name. Um, it, it's interesting that we sing. The Bible talks about us singing a lot. It doesn't talk about angels singing a lot. It talks about the morning star singing for joy when the earth was created. I used to say it never has a, where angels sing, but, you know, be careful when you say never because all it takes is finding one place. All right, so I hope that's helpful, Paul. Please ask a follow-up if you need to. I'll check here before we go it, uh, if we don't make it very far down beyond this <clears throat> with the questions coming in. Um, but if you need a follow-up on that, um, if you need me to get a little bit more practical with you, um, I can do that. I just think it's something that you have to determine you're going to do because God said to do it. And it doesn't matter if I don't like it or enjoy it. It's something that I need to be doing. It's something that I need to be giving to Him. All right? So thank you very much, Paul, uh, for that. And thank you for allowing me to answer it here. Rather than writing that all out, <clears throat> I find a couple of things difficult on the comment section. Number one, I don't like to debate on the comment section uh, because I just don't like to debate on it. I just feel like the person that you're debating can just disregard what you said and go into something else, disregard and go into something else. And there's not a real honesty of looking someone in the eye. Um, but I also don't like to answer lengthy questions online uh, just because it's hard to sit there 
and and end up typing it all out. So allowing me to be able to do this and express this in a better way um, here, I appreciate that. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. Um, so we have another question here from Empress Kimberly. She says, hi, Pastor, Matthew eleven twenty seven. Could you explain what Jesus meant when he said, no one knows the Father but those to whom he chooses to reveal himself to? Is this limited to some Christians only? So let's go ahead and take a look at this passage. I'm trying to think of where this, ex um, what's going on here in Matthew 11.27. Oh, let's see. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. So let's just go back a little bit. Was that 27, 11.27? Yeah, let's go back a little bit here and try to find the context of what he's talking about. All right, so we're going to go back to verse 25. And I'm going to bring this up and read it. Your question here is, could you explain what Jesus meant when he said, no one knows the Father, but to him whom he will he chooses to reveal uh, to? Is this limited to um, only some Christians? So let me go ahead and do this. Bring your question down here so I can see it. And then I'm going to go ahead and bring this up on the screen. And we're going to read this together. So we're going to start in verse 25 because that's uh, the beginning of this little section. It says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and of the earth. Um, I, let, me do, let me just do this. I just, want to, I just want to know the larger context. Okay. Okay. He curses the cities before this. Um, Uh, John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus. Okay, so this is after John has been looking for some confirmation as to who the Messiah is. And um, he began to rebuke the cities of Corazon, Bethsaida. Um, the Tyre and Sire would be better for the day, Tyre and Sire in the days of judgment. Capernaum as well, he rebuked them. So um, Jesus is talking about some heavy things here in this chapter. And now he says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good to yours in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Okay. So, I think that this is, is, is pretty self-explanatory, reading it just in context. So, I'll kind of go over this. All things have been delivered to be me by my Father. So, Jesus came, subjected himself to the Father, which shows that, and, and the Father and the Son are equal, and Jesus talks about their equality. It shows that subjection to someone else doesn't mean equality. If I subject myself to a police officer who wants to search my car it does nothing to do with, with equality or morals or any of those things. So everything was delivered to the Son by the Father. Jesus is doing everything the Father wants to do. The Father, the Son, all working together. And Jesus has taken on the body of a human. And now he subjects himself completely to whatever the Father wants. He says, all things have been delivered to me by a Father and no one knows the Son except the Father. So their intimacy as being three distinct persons, but one in essence, three distinct, but one in essence being God. God is one. 
made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one would know the Son like the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, who is now revealing it to him, and those whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, Jesus has a will, and he wills to reveal it to them. Now, some will make this passage into some kind of random choice for salvation. So God says, I'm going to reveal it to him, I'm going to reveal it to him, I'm going to reveal it to him, but I'm not going to reveal it to her, him, or her. So that, that they'll read into it this Calvinistic idea of arbitrary or um, uh, being selected by God um, for whatever purposes God has in mind. But when it says, and the one to whom the Son will reveal him, who, who does God want to reveal, who does the Son want to reveal the Father to? Those who believe in his name. So he's talking about those who come to him and believe in his name. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is a, an invitation. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The ones whom God, that Jesus, wants to reveal the Father to are, is anyone who believes in him. And um, I want to go to, let me just go to John uh, 1, and let me see, I'm going to start in verse, start in verse 12, okay? So let me bring this up to you here. So we're still thinking about who the Son wills to reveal the Father to. So the Bible says that if anyone believes in him, he will be given eternal life. Um, in the end of Romans 9, it says that the Jews rejected belief by faith, trying to keep the law, but the Gentiles by faith received it. So it's by faith that Jesus chose to reveal to those Gentiles. And here, I think we're going to find the same thing. It says, but as many as receive him, he gave the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So when you receive Christ and you believe in his name, he gives you the right to become a child of God. This is the person whom Jesus wants to reveal the Father to, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, who are the ones who are born of God? Those who believe, right? Come back up to the, the point. As many as receive him and gave him a right to become a child of God to whoever believes in his name. So it's the receiving and believing, which is not a work. And then... Um, you're born of God and Jesus reveals the Father to you. So, whoever believes in him would have the, have, have the Father revealed to him. Uh, and again, Romans 9, we find the same kind of thing near the end of the chapter. Last couple of verses in the chapter. Um, I'm going to start, I think, at 32. Um, and we'll go actually go back to 31. Let's go to 30. <clears throat> All right. So again, we're thinking about who the who the who the son reveals the father to. What shall we say then? That Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? So the Gentiles obtained righteousness by faith. So who did the son reveal the father to? Those that have faith. But Israel pursuing the law. And that's the whole thing in this whole chapter. It's how you can't be saved just because you're of Israel. You have to come by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained law, 
uh, uh, to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. So he didn't reveal the Father to them because they didn't seek it by faith, but the Gentiles, he revealed the Father to them because they sought it by faith. But as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This doesn't, now they've read into this chapter the, the, the choosing of an individual before the foundations of the world, but it never says that. In fact, at all, all that it says here, it's talking about the nation of Israel not being able to be saved by the law. And, and anyone who believes by faith is able to be saved and follow him. So let me just bring in your question one more time here. We'll make sure um, that we've gone over it and have it answered. But I believe that we had uh, my, uh, uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. Could you explain what Jesus meant when he said, no one knows the Father but those who he chooses to reveal them to? Yeah. So who he chooses to reveal it to are those who believe in his name. That's what he's chosen. And if you want to say that was before the foundations of the world, fine. That before the foundations of the world, God said, anyone who believes in me will be saved. And anyone who doesn't believe in me will not be saved. So you could have someone chosen before the foundations of the world uh, and they would believe and be chosen before the foundations of the world because God made it so that anyone who believes in him would believe before the foundations of the world. Okay, so um, again, maybe a little bit complicated, hopefully not too much, Kimberly. All right, so thank you very much. Um, we have another question from Pokey. Um, Pokey says, uh, does... Robert C. Ezekiel 38 in the near future since it's heating up here in Israel, or heating up in Israel. Uh, so there's a coalition. The battle comes from the north in Ezekiel 38. There is some discrepancy about who Gog and Magog is. Gog seems to be a title. <clears throat> um, Tubish um, and, and Mishkel and Rosh. Uh, these are kings that come from the north. If you go north from Israel, you're going to hit Lebanon, you're going to hit Syria, you're going to hit Iraq, um, you're going to eventually hit uh, the, uh, Russia. If you just look on a map and you go north, directly north. And so all of these have been spoken of as being uh, the the um, enemies that come from the north. That was said of Nebuchadnezzar that he came from the north. Nebuchadnezzar was from the area of Iraq. And he definitely had to go south, but he had to go a little bit over to go be able to go south. Um, so, yeah, I, I, this coalition, there's going to be a coalition. Some of them are very easy to identify. Libya and Persia, which is Iran, uh, and some of them are more difficult to identify. Turkey, uh, Russia, there seems to be some confusion between these and when, you, when you're talking to experts and when you find that experts disagree, if there's a lot of disagreement between the experts, then it's probably best just to go, we're not quite sure because we don't need to be exact. One day, a nation from the north, most likely Russia, probably Turkey, Iran, are all going to be involved in it and they're going to come against Israel. And uh, this is Ezekiel 38 and they're going to be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. That's what the Bible says. And I do think we are close to that happening. Does that happen in the beginning of the tribulation period? Maybe. Maybe we see it before the tribulation period starts. Okay. So, um, I appreciate that question, Pokey. And maybe the first time 
that you're here with us. Good to have you here. So it looks like we've got a question. Um, so, okay, yeah, that would just explain how to, how to be able to write the question, yeah. Okay, yeah, if you have a question, then you can write the word question or a cue in front of it, and then I'll take time to look down through here and we'll find it. So we have a question from Joe. Joe, good to see you. And Joe is the first time here with us. Um, Samuel told Saul and his son was going to be, oops. All right. All right, so, so uh, Samuel told Saul and his son was going to be in the same place tomorrow with high. What does this mean as it isn't? Hmm. So, Joe, I'm not sure what you're trying to ask. I'm not even going to really try to answer this because I don't know. If you could rewrite your question and then write it as clear as you can, and maybe it's clear and I'm just not seeing it. Um, it's to me, it's, I, I um, just and reread it a couple of times and then submit it again. Um, maybe we can get it in um, before we're done. I'll, I'll actually go and take a look at the end to see if you got it in again, Joe. Um, but just try to make it a little bit clearer. Reread it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense. And then go ahead and submit it. Um, I've guessed it once before and guessed wrong. So I, I, I answer things they're not even asking. Which, yeah, which I do. I'll, I answer questions people aren't even asking without answering their question. Follow up. Fun fact, check these hands. I can't remember the scripture that was quoted by this preacher, but I'm trying to find it. I'll try to get it to you here in the next video. Thank you very much as that follow-up. I would love, I'd love to see what scripture he's come, he came to that would say that. And hey, you know what? Maybe I haven't looked at every, I haven't looked at every passage in every scenario. And I would be pretty confident that there's not a passage that says that. But we'll see because uh, sometimes, you know, we're wrong. We can be, have you ever thought for sure 100% you were right only to find out that you were wrong? Um, I remember learning this lesson as a teenager. I thought 100% one friend had done something and I thought it was him for sure only to find out I was another friend later on and I thought I was right. And I had my reasons for thinking that I was right. So sometimes we can think we're right when we are not right at all. Um, so we have we have a question uh, from Facebook, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce your name here, but we do have one from Facebook. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Um, how can we be truly assured that we are born again, our souls redeemed, if previously we've been guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Isn't this sin more um, common among non-believers than? Uh, than supposed believers. Okay, well, thank you. All right, so let me go ahead and answer this. All right, so first of all, the blasphemy of the Spirit can only be committed by someone who has a lot of information. So when you go back to the context of Jesus talking to the scribes and Pharisees about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they had known him, they, had, they should have known who it was, they knew the scriptures really well, and they had committed blasphemy in the spirit. And Jesus said that a word spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not the blasphemy against the Spirit. So it's not a word spoken against the Spirit, Holy Spirit, but it's the blasphemy of the Spirit. And I believe that's a rejection when you have enough knowledge to know this is the truth and you reject. 
And so, how can you know that you're born again if you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I don't think you committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you had, you wouldn't want to repent. I think we see something like this in Hebrews chapter 6, where it talks about tasting of the heavenly gifts and the good word of God, and then fall away. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. If you want to repent, then you could come back. And anybody who truly wants to repent, then they can come back to him, call out upon his name. All who call on his name will be saved. It means they won't be able to call out on his name. So that's the blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, how do you know you are truly born again? How do you have the assurance that you're born again? The Bible tells us in 1 John that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Now, this is the evidence of a believer. Not that he always keeps God's commandments, but that he wants to. So if you say, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Ah, there's a problem there. Because if, uh, if you're really a believer, you're going to want to do what God wants you to do. doesn't mean you want to do it all the time. It doesn't mean you don't struggle with your flesh because the spirit battles against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. But you are going to be doing things that God does want you to do because you are a genuine believer. And you're going to be following him. And that's the best way for us to have an assurance that we're really saved. Ask yourself, um, and I wish I could pronounce your name. Do I really want to do the things God calls me to do? Do I really want to do the things that the Bible tells me that God wants me to do? And that's how you can have that assurance. So no, blasphemy of the Spirit would not be non-believers unless they're non-believers that have a whole lot of information. I would think maybe of someone who is an Old Testament or New Testament scholar. They've gotten a whole lot of information but they've rejected and rejected now, and they get to a place where they cannot be saved, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that could be very scary. Okay? Thank you for your question. I appreciate it. We have a question from uh, WMB 1977, IFY. Question. What do you think about the false teaching of Clarence Larkin and William Branham on the seven churches of Asia Minor and renaming them the Seven Church Ages of Asia Minor. Okay, so thanks uh, for your question, WMB. Um, I don't know who Clarence Larkin is. William Branham was a false teacher that died in the 60s, I believe. I think it was like 65 when he died. Uh, he started off as a good, solid teacher and then denied the Trinity and became you know, became cult-like in a lot of ways, had a lot of claims about himself, and um, had to start teaching the serpent seed, for example, was one of William Branham's teachings. Um, there are there are a group of uh, there are a group of, of Brahmanites still here in Tucson, and we have some at our church that used to be a part of it, and they do a web page, which is a really good web page, um, and I, I'll look it up and share it with you at some point where they talk about things that they were taught that were wrong. Now. William Branham taught that the seven churches were also seven church ages. That you could put it like a stencil over history and that you have these churches and you can put period time periods to those churches. William Branham is not the only one who taught it. Neither do I believe that he's the one who came up with it. Uh, I think there's a lot of different people that have taught it. Um, I don't know the first place that I heard it, but I would have heard it, first of all, from 
J. Vernon McGee, Chuck Smith, Raul Reese, Skip Heitzig. Um, that's where I would have heard it, first of all. And I've heard pastors lately that I trust that are really good pastors teaching on the um, on the, the churches in Revelation that will give the dates and lay them out, kind of like William Branham did. Um, I don't do that because I'm not quite sure it really fits. Um, in a general way, it seems to. You have the two churches in the end, the lukewarm church and the believing church. They would seem to be side by side in a, in a time frame, if that's really true. So when you lay it out, it could seem like it might work. So I would be interested to find out if this teaching was around before William Branham. I don't know exactly how to do um, that research, but maybe it could be as simple as, um, you know, who was the first one to teach the um, seven churches age theory, ages theory. It could be as simple as that. Um, so, what do I think about false, the false teachings of these guys? I think that there was a lot of them that I know of William Brown. Like I said, I don't know Clarence Larkin. I assume he was associated with them, but I know William Branham taught a lot of things. William Branham was a false prophet, when, like Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith prophesied things that did not come to pass. Joseph Smith wrote himself into the Bible. You go to the end of Genesis 30 in his version, and he writes himself into the Bible. Um, William Branham was a false prophet as well. He, he said he, that people were healed when they weren't healed. He was a faith healer. He said that they were healed when they weren't healed. Now, God does miracles today, but there are people that just take advantage of other people. Um, and William Branham was one of those faith healers that did that and was a false prophet because he made statements that didn't come true. And uh, we can be confident of that. All right? Let's see. My pastor should have a set of headphones on for his thumbnail. Uh, yeah, um, I should have a set of headphones phones on to know if my sound's right, right? So that I don't get scared and think, oh, there's a problem. I'd be able to hear myself. And I do have, look, these guys right here that I can check and see. Yep, I, I'm, I'm there. I can hear myself on there. So I do, I do have them, but I'm just not going to wear them during their, you know, Turn this into the, the podcast style where you have the microphone in front and you got the headphones on as you're talking into it. Um, all right, so I do have them. So thank you very much. Um, so Joe, Joe has a, um, wrote out his question better here. We've got just a few minutes, Joe. If I can't get to it all, we'll get to it at another Q&A, all right? Question, Samuel 28, 19. Samuel told Saul uh, his kingdom would be removed and his son would be where he is tomorrow. Yes, that that Sam that that Jonathan and Saul would be where Samuel is. Is Samuel in heaven yet? Doesn't seem Saul and his son were going um, to heaven, right? Ah, uh, well, let's see. Um, Jonathan, I think, would be, and Saul, I would think, wouldn't be. So, Saul has gone to a witch at Endor. It sounds like a moon in Star Wars, but it's not. So, he'd gone to a witch in Endor to, 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 to talk to the dead and called up Samuel. Now, she screams because it works. And Samuel comes up from the dead and Samuel tells him, tomorrow you're going to be where I am. Uh, by this, I think what he means, Joe, is dead. Where is Samuel? He's in the place of the dead. He's in the grave. They will be in the grave. They will be where he is. Even though Jonathan would be in heaven 
and Saul would not be. That would be my take on it um, from, from studying both of them. Remember, when we say that Jonathan would be in heaven, we're not talking about heaven because Jesus had to descend. Remember Abraham and the, the, the comfort of Abraham and the people that could see him were in torment and that he descended and took a host of captives out of captivity. So in the Old Testament times, there was a holding place for all that had faith in Christ. And it seems to be like there was the same, there was the same place with a gulf between them. If that story of Jesus is a literal story and not a parable, then it would seem like that's what he's talking about. So they could both be in the same place, one of them being comforted and one of them being in torment. All right. So uh, feel free to ask a follow-up question, Joe, if you have one on that. Um, but I, I think it's pretty clear he meant the dead. And if he did literally mean you're both going to be here with me in the grave or in the place of the dead, there was a place of torment and a place where, where people were comforted and there was a gulf between them and couldn't pass between them. Jesus told that story in Luke chapter 16, I believe. All right, so it's five o'clock. Um, man, sometimes the hour just flies. And I really appreciate you guys. I hope that you're blessed. Stay close to Jesus. Delight yourself in the Lord so he can give you the desires of his heart. Abide in him. May God help you to be obedient to his word. Um, may God allow you to have a beautiful experience of worshiping him with music, with song. Paul, may God really let you break through uh, that struggle that you've got going on. And um, may the Lord truly bless you guys. Um, I hope you have a great time in church this weekend. Stay close to Jesus. Look to be obedient to him. Follow after what he said. Um, there is um, pleasures forevermore at his, at his right hand and times of refreshment that come from the presence of God. So go and hang out with Jesus and find that time of refreshment, all right? So I am out. We'll see you guys later on.